welcome to the Enthusiast Podcast, where I sit down with leading founders, operators, and investors that are trailblazers in their ecosystems, leapfrogging development and creating growth for their economies. We dive into the nitty-gritty of scaling business and investing, showcasing the tremendous success cases beyond Silicon Valley. Hi, this is Pat from The Enthusiast. You are in for a truly special episode with Ricardo Canitz, founding partner of Brazilian Alternatives Asset Manager Spectra Investments. We dive into the founding story behind Spectra more than 10 years ago. What was the original vision behind the firm? How they constructed one of the most sophisticated alternatives portfolios in the region including some of the region's most prolific venture investors, such as Kazakh, Monashis, DGF, Astella, Nasca, Big Bats, and many more. It was a true pleasure to pick Ricardo's brain on investment strategy, diversification, how to behave in the current risk on environment, and his take on search funds and why they provide such a huge opportunity and so much more. Truly enjoyed this episode with Ricardo. If you like the work we're doing, make sure to follow us on wherever you're getting your podcasts and drop us a review or rating. Make sure to follow our newsletter on LinkedIn or Substack to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. Now, without further ado, directly onto the episode. Hi, Ricardo. It is such a pleasure having you on the show today. Hi, it's a great pleasure to be here as well. Thanks so much for making the time. Really excited to dive deeper into your story, into Latama ecosystem, and of course, the story behind Spectra, arguably one of the leading, if not the leading fund of fund in Latin America. Just really curious to take a step back and hear more about your story on how you got started into investing in LATAM and then eventually started Spectra. Sure. There's a long version and a short version. The short version of it is that I went to business school, undergrad business school in Brazil, and then I decided to work at a, my first internship was at a big industrial complex. I worked there for a few months and it was such a dull job. I'm not mentioning the name of the company because of that. My life seemed to be like Dilbert's. And a few months into this, I said, I don't want to be this to be my my life. Let me go into something more stimulating and, and more energetic. And I went into consulting. And I picked a, an interesting consulting company. It was only about doing the strategy, but they were actually doing the implementation afterwards, which made it more fun. But as we're doing the implementations of, of the projects we, we designed, I realized that there's so much work getting the buy-ins of all the areas in the, the in the, those very large companies involved so we could actually do the implementation. And, and being the consultant, you didn't have any power to do it. You just had to do the, all the talks. And this led me into like a deep reflection process of there must be something easier so that we can do it. And that's when I found about private equity, which seemed to be the ideal compromise in which you still have the, the brains behind thinking on, on what to do. But since you're buying the company, you have more say in how to implement the changes. And that's how what led me to go into private equity almost like 20 years ago. 
How did you then uh, start Spectra? Like, what was the vision at the beginning and to what did it grow into today? We began as a startup. Like, we're now a big asset manager, but this is also a startup in a sense. The business plan or the, the version 1.0 of the business plan was that back in 2009, we saw the Brazilian private equity market growing. There were roughly 100 managers back then. Therefore, it, had, it was becoming a complex ecosystem. It was not, it was not easy to pick one or two because there was a hundred. And at the same time, interest rates in Brazil were falling, which meant that local high net worth individuals would need to diversify their assets away from government bond for the first time. They most likely go first into public equities, but at one point they had to go into private equity as well. And we thought a fund of funds was a great like first step into the private equity, equity ecosystem. And that's how we began. Now, 12 years have passed. It changed a lot. So we don't only do private equity. We now do the whole of alternatives going from very early stage growth, buyout, distress, legal claims, mining, uh, search funds, which is a niche area. Uh, biotech, which is also VC, but it's a very different type of biotech and, and so forth. We do a bit of infra. We don't only do funds. We co-invest alongside those funds that are acting to deals. And we do secondaries, which means we buy stakes into funds or companies that they are half the way through for someone that wants to sell and there's no liquidity. The way now we see what we're trying to achieve is to build an investment machine and try to make it as beautiful as we can, as efficient as, as, as we can. And the way to do it is, with the first step, we, we partner up with the best teams in the region. And each team is good at something. There are teams that are amazing at mining. There are teams that are amazing at agri. There are teams that are amazing at, at, at SaaS and, and so forth. And the first step into the partnership is to invest in their funds. That's how they live. And, and, and that's how we begin to allocate and have our resources into the ecosystem. But this is just the first step. And after we invest in the funds, we become the partners. They start showing us deal flow. We now have 40 to 50 partners in LATAM, and they're constantly sending deal flows. We're most likely, or almost for sure, the players that see the most deal flow in LATAM, just because of the sheer magnitude of the partnerships we have. By the fact that we have such a huge deal flow, we can just simply pick the best. We don't have to be smarter and, and having a better assessment than the managers or the teams we invest with. But since that we, there's so much more than we can do, we can just pick the deals that seem to be nicer than the other one. That's amazing. And we're going to dive deeper into the tremendous GP relationships you've built in LATAM over the years with uh, some of the most prestigious venture firms in the region. But before that, just to take a step back for the listeners that are not that familiar with the fund of funds investing model, how does it actually work? Do you have different funds of funds with different kind of a package inside? There's so much so allocation in PE, in uh, buyouts, in, in VC, and in bio, and different sectors. Like, how do you set this up and how do you then approach your investors? It's a great question. The vast majority of our peers elsewhere do this. They have niche products. We decided not to. And then this co comes from like a, a philosophical point of view on our, our side. And, and th there are some aspects. First, within the investment world, there, there are two types of entities that we call asset managers or investors. Asset managers are entities in which the 
the profit area of the profit division of the company comes from the fundraising side and the cost center is the investment team. Banks usually are like this. Uh, so you go after your clients and say, hey, what are you looking to invest in? Uh, would you like to invest in VC? I have an interesting product for you. Would you like infra? I have an amazing product for you. And then you hire an investment team that will deliver what you promised to your client. And you have another type of animal, which are the investors. It's a team of people that say, wow, there's such an amazing investment idea here. It's going to be brilliant, but I need money to, to invest in. And then you go and try to fundraise and convince people that your idea makes sense. It's the same types of fees, the 2 and 20, whatever. It's just how you position yourself, what you're trying to do. You, you want to raise as much as you can, but you need to have a great product so that people invest with you. Or you think you have an amazing product, but you need to raise money so that you can invest. We try to position ourselves on the investment side as investors, which makes our life investing harder. And, and how then this translates into in the products. We think it's a much better product to be a, a one fund that does it all. The same vehicle does primaries, investing funds, co-investments and secondaries. It does VC. It does uh, distress just to go into the two sides of the spectrum. It's harder to invest, to, to fundraise because we, 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 it's not able to put, we, we cannot be put in, into a pigeonhole. So, oh, those guys do this and do that. It, it's more difficult to understand what we do, but we don't even know how to call ourselves. Are we a fund of funds? Only 30% of what we do is investing funds. 70% is something else. But we think this is a much better investment product. And then this goes into VC. VC used to be 30% of what we do up to 2018, 19. But then we saw the ecosystem changing, things being more pricey, and, and private equity becoming much more attractive than VC. And because it's a, just one blind pool, we lowered our allocation for, uh, to VC from 30 to 10% over the last couple of years. It worked greatly for us, uh, the fact that we had this flexibility. If we had only a VC fund of funds, we would have to invest in VC and, and, and not be able to stay away from areas we don't think as attractive. That's very interesting. For the LPs of your fund then, how does it work? Like when you when you pitch that fund, are you saying, okay, this is the allocation at the moment. This is kind of the different divisions we have, but it's going to be fluid based on market conditions. Trust us? Sort of like that. But trust, you don't gain trust out of the blue. You build trust over time. Our fund one was a almost primary fund. 70% of what we were doing was primaries, owning private equity. And every new fund, we expand a bit the areas of our expertise. Fund two, we began doing VC. This was back in 2014. It was a bit early still in the VC ecosystem. We're even shy about telling LPs that we wanted to invest in VC because back then people thought that VC in LATAM would never work because VC had to be in the Silicon Valley, not even Silicon Valley, within the Golden Circle, a term that people don't mention anymore that, that much often. And so our view back then was, hey, VC in LATAM could work. It, it might not, but it can. And the only way to invest in VC globally or back then was to invest in those golden circle guys at the benchmarks and the sequoias. But if you try to invest today in benchmark and say, I'm sorry, I'm full. I've been full for the last like decade or so. And um, because we, we're not growing in LPs like us. So we give preference for LPs. Uh, and therefore in the US, the only way, 
if you're not in Benchmark or Sequoia, you'd better stay out of the VC ecosystem than trying to invest in a second tier manager. Our vision in Brazil in 2014 was, hey, the VC ecosystem back then, there were like 30 to 40 managers, has not proved itself. There is no clear sequoias in, in, in LATAM, but maybe there will, will emerge some. Let's invest a few in, in a few of those guys and try to be right about the future sequoias. Uh, a very small amount of the fund, one, two, three percent. If we lose it all, it won't change anything. Even if it's an amazing return, it will not change anything, but it will change one thing. Give us information and give us access. And that's how we began doing VC. It worked uh, great for us. Then we began doing distress and then we began doing search funds. And each new fund, we do a bit more. Usually in the new fund, say, oh, we're going to try to test this the mining in LATAM. LATAM is a huge mining destination. One of the few areas in which LATAM is global leader. But there were, there were no mining managers in Brazil. The small mines, and people think in Brazil, they think about iron ore as mining, but you have the whole periodic table of, 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 of uh, materials. You have like uh, vanadium, copper, lithium, whatever. And all those small mining companies were bought by Australian managers, uh, Canadian managers, and British managers that do specializing mining or something. Doesn't make sense. That should be a local guy. We went out, we found through LinkedIn, we cold called a team that was working in the Canadian merchant bank and say, hey, would you guys want to get out and become a manager? It took two years, this process. And eventually we seeded them and they began to exist. A great guys called Or Investments. But it was still a test, right? And it might not work. Whenever we raise a new fund, say, hey, LPs, we're going to try to test mining. It's not going to be more than 5% of the fund this term. But if it works, we will expand. If it doesn't, we just stop investing. And that's how over time we build trust so we could do this very broad, diversified investment machine. That's remarkable. Very, very exciting and certainly an interesting uh, blueprint for other asset managers out there that probably follow this very pigeonholed strategy. Diving a bit deeper on, on the VC side, I'm curious when you started this in 2014 and you were seeking out uh, GPs, how did you source them and how did you decide eventually, okay, I'm going to batch on this GP on that one? What were your criteria back in the day? So our vision back then is that usually in investments or in private equity, there are five main steps you have to do in the process. You have to be able to originate the best deals. You have to be able to analyze the best deals and decide if they're good or not. You have to negotiate and create interesting terms to invest. You have to add value and you have to sell. This is the private asset process. But within VC, by far the most important step is originate the best deals. The, the rest is important as well, but I think we thought that this is like, I'll guess like 80% of the added value. And for you to originate the best deals, it's usually the opposite. Is the, the best entrepreneurs that call you. Uh, Sequoia is, is the best because the best entrepreneurs want to have money from Sequoia because it, this is a positive signaling about the quality of the company. And this creates a virtual circle in which Sequoia has access to the best entrepreneurs, therefore has the best returns, therefore has the best branding and therefore continues to have access to best interpreters. Before we began investing in VC, we made a market survey. And, and we've been doing this for every every couple of years. We call roughly 80 interpreters and trying to be do interesting sample. And we ask them who are the best VCs and why. And with this we get a, we get a ranking of, of, of the VCs that people like the most. And this is a great indication 
all the, the VCs are going to get the best deal flow and therefore the VCs are going to get the best returns. And this is interesting per se, but now we can see not only a, a snapshot, but over the last 10, eight years, we, we've doing this and so we can see the evolution and the evolution is also very important. If you're number one and you're starting to go down, this means something. If you're down there, you're starting to go up, that also means something. And also now it's only if you're number one, but you can also be number one for a niche market. And that also means something. If like a subset entrepreneurs think you are the best, this also means it, this is also very good because, but it means you cannot grow too much because it's just a subset of interpret. Obviously, you also go and, and do uh, diligence and try to understand the managers if you like them, blah, 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 blah. But the, the, this market survey, I, I think, is our secret sauce. That's a very, very smart hack. You're going, instead of going to the VC, you go to the client of the VC, actually, or, or to the wins they have to convince. Um, makes all the sense, of course. And uh, what's your take on betting on emerging fund managers? I mean, there's always this... Um, case where people say okay you should invest from the first vintage and and build kind of your commitment to those emerging fund managers and this is how you achieve the best returns is that a, also a strategy spectra is following i'm trying to think but the vast majority of the managers we invest with are first-time managers uh, obviously we continue investing with them so after some time they're not emerging anymore but the, the sort of the first check we do to a manager it's rarely they're not, it's not the first fund, which is different from the majority uh, of what people do. But it makes sense into our strategy that we're trying to build amazing partnerships. If we wait some for someone to raise fund five so that we can create a relationship with them, we're gonna, not going to be seen as a great partner. They, we're going to see be seen, opportunistic is a bad word, but we're going to be seen as followers. So, hey, oh, now that's obvious. There we go. That you're coming in. You're not going to be my first call, right? But if you're the first important ticket for someone that is still struggling and you say, hey, I'm going to trust you. I believe you. I think you can be amazing. Then you're going to be remembered. And and then it's the best way for you to start a great relationship. Yes, I agree. It's the same with entrepreneurs. Like if you're betting on them early on this is how you build the relationship and, and that trust before they're famous and show up in the newspapers and uh, you're already adding value before that right the venture ecosystem and brazil certainly has changed a lot with in terms of investing in vc how has that changed across the different funds that you've raised and the relationships you are having to ulps there's kind of that saying that now family offices are all over kind of vc or, or alternatives but it wasn't always like that I have very much traditional whiskey investors, and that has changed. Can you give us some details on this to add some spice to it? How much has it changed and what can we expect for the future in that regard? So I'll give you some numbers. Uh, VC as a percentage of alternative, alternative funds being raised in Brazil 10 years ago, would represent something like less than 10%, I'll say five to seven. Uh, we have a study, it's in our webpage, but it's something like that. In 2020, 21, VC was something like 80% of all alternative funds raised in Brazil. It doesn't make sense, right? And at the same time, you look at Brazilian families, back in the 90s, they were almost irrelevant as a percentage of the LP base, the vast majority were foreign LPs. 
and some local development banks. You go into 2010 to 14, then local pension funds became important. And then you go into 2020, 21, and 80% of the money were coming from local families, which were just local respondents and local families investing in local VCs. And that has become huge. I don't think it has become an important asset allocation for the families. And, and VC has not become 50% of the net worth. Of course not. But it, there are so many rich families and in, in, in the region that even a tiny 1%, 2% of the net worth has become important for the local ecosystem, which is part of the reason why we, we began getting out of VC. It's not that we don't believe in VC. It's not that it doesn't make sense. Of course it does. But we have a view that amazing returns exist when there are inefficiencies in the market. The most inefficient the market is, the, the greater the possibility for great returns. And within the Latamic ecosystem, VC has become the, the by far the most efficient, by far, which doesn't make sense. Usually VC has amazing returns in the US because it, it's where the most inefficiency is. Very, very small startups is, is more inefficient than the large corporate and at, at, at S&P, but not in Brazil. The whole ecosystem for VC now exists. You have the angels, you have a lot of angels, you have angel communities, you have pre-seed, you have seed, you have, you, you have series A, B, C, D, and, and you have all the corporates investing directly into companies, becoming clients of those startups, investing in funds, creating like accelerator programs, becoming CVCs. You have all the hedge funds globally coming in. You have SoftBank, you, you have it all. I'm not saying this is a bubble. I'm just saying it has become efficient. A great way to materialize this efficiency is that a startup in LATAM up to 2021, most likely the same, was trading at the same multiple as a startup in the US, say 20, 30 times revenue. But a private equity company in LATAM was trading at roughly a 50% discount than a private equity company elsewhere. Here, seven, eight times EBITDA, they're like 14, 15, 16 times EBITDA. It doesn't make sense. The, the same reason that leads to a private equity company here requiring a discount than elsewhere should be the reason that we make VC company or a startup require a discount from elsewhere. It doesn't make sense for one area to be traded at par, the other area to be traded at huge discount. And I think part of this is the efficiency and part of the, the, in the, the efficiency is the amount of money that was flowing into the ecosystem. So much to, to unpack there. So basically you're saying VC in Latam has gotten too popular. I don't say too popular. It's it relatively popular to other asset classes. Because too popular, it, it could lead to, it's a bubble. It could be a bubble and, and, and a bubble is bursting. But our rationale back in early 2021 is that there was no more arbitrage. In, in VC, but there was arbitrage elsewhere. Therefore, we, we, since we have flexibility, let's go somewhere. Absolutely. And arguably, the Brazilian ecosystem is easily 10 years ahead, probably from other markets in LATAM. So I see that quite often when I'm talking to family offices out of Chile. And there's often the question, like, why should I invest in a VC in LATAM or in Chile? I want to diversify from LATAM. I've got all my assets here. I've got my holding here. I want to diversify from it. I want to invest in dollars. I don't want to do anything with LATAM. So you have to kind of tell that story and pitch against that perception. Like, what, what do you say to, to those LPs that are saying, I mean, you, you got to diversify away from LATAM. You shouldn't invest in local VC, for instance. Before I answer this question, I'm going to touch on a point that you mentioned that 
other areas of LATAM are 10 years before Brazil. And then I go into diversification. We began investing in Mexico VC four years ago with that view. Hey, VC in Brazil is becoming efficient, but there's the rest of LATAM. And here, the Mexico, an amazing country, big, and, and, and the, the parts of ecosystem are now in place. You should have a boom in, in VC. And then we began investing. We found two amazing managers there in two or three years we saw the gap come really close and by gapping valuations. Valuations that like five years ago, they were at a discount from Brazil. Now they're roughly apart. We looked at managers in Colombia. It, very fast that they, they, they approach a part to Brazil, which is a part elsewhere. I'm not saying they're, they're amazing guys and et cetera, but I cannot say anything about Chile and how the valuations in Chile now correspond to the rest. But I guess it has become sort of like more like globalized. It depends on the type of company, if the company has ambitions, blah, 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 but it has no more lives. Coming back to your question about allocations, right? On, I, I think it's still small. But that, that's like, now, now that things are suffering and valuations are going down, we do secondaries. Part, part of the beauty of what we do is like, I, I come to a, a someone and say, would you want to buy or sell? We, we never lose a meeting. If they don't want to buy, so do you want to sell, right? Because of this, we're now seeing lots of deal flow from local families that want to sell their VC positions. But they want to sell mainly because they're seeing that things are going down and trying to be smart. Hey, I see like listed tech going down by 70%. My private equity valuations have not dropped. So if I get a 20% discount, I'm still making money like a... Try to trade being traders on us, and then realize that we also have seen that listed that tech has fallen, and most likely our valuation have to fall at least as much as what listed has fallen as well, right? And therefore, we never close the deal because they, when they see a 75% discount, they say, Hey, I don't want to sell. But this is all to say that we haven't seen a family that it's like over allocated to VC. I think the maximum is seeing someone that because of the, the, of the markups. It has reached 10% of the net worth, which means that there's someone that invested between three to four or five. It's just not that much. It means something, but it's not worrisome for their net worth, right? Yeah, it's not like an overexposure where you got to be concerned about it. Moving over to another topic, and uh, Spectra is quite big on releasing different reports on the investing landscape in, in LATAM, in Brazil. And your latest report, I, I found that really interesting, where you were comparing PE returns in the States to Brazil. And you were trying to explain why some of these discrepancies happen, be it currency, be it the multiple transactions within PE. Um, can you maybe break it down to the listeners? Why there's such a discrepancy? Is it just the depth of the market? Is it that we have still too much volatility, as everyone is always saying, LATAM is too risky because of currency risk. Like, What's your take on this? I'm going to give an overall uh, summary of, of the study. We looked at returns in the US and Brazil uh, over the last 10 years. Returns in the US are amazing, Brazil crap. Then we looked like what, what's driving those returns? And we looked at the operational performance of portfolio companies. In the US, over the last 10, 15 years, private equity uh, investee companies are growing revenues and EBITDA by 7, 8% a year on average. In Brazil, at 15% a year on average. How come bad growth means good returns and good growth means bad returns? We looked at asset pricing. And over the last like, 10, 12 years in the US, prices have only gone up. 
they were trading at eight, nine times they'd be dying in 2010 to 15, 16 now. And whereas prices here have remained steady. If you add leverage there and no leverage here, you do a back on the envelope calculation and this leads to high returns there, bad returns here, which are exactly what Cambridge Associates shows. So our view is that the main reason why private equity in the US has worked over the last 12 years is quantitative easing. The same reason why VC went to the bubble. Interest rates going down, asset prices going up. They were not really adding value operationally, but they profited from asset prices going up, which means it's not their merit. It's just the, the economy. It, it could be buying a long-only leveraged portfolio and have the same returns. But Brazil and LATAM suffered because asset prices have not gone up. And part of the reason the asset prices have not gone up, in my view, it, it, it's sort of the, the, the virtual circle. It was investors saying, hey, returns are so good in the US, let me, let move, let's move all our money to the US. And they, when they take out money from here, asset prices go down. And, and just the, this massive movement of money into this bubble created by quantitative easing has led to great returns elsewhere. What's going to be the future? We'll never know, but most likely it's going to be different, right? Uh, most likely asset prices are not going to keep on increasing the US. They might decrease, but or, or even if they remain stable, returns there are going to suffer. And if our returns, prices remain stable, most likely returns here are going to be better than elsewhere than in the US. Fascinating. So you're basically saying those are factors that are kind of out, outside our control. I mean, those are exogenous macro factors. It's interesting. Usually we attribute when things are going well, we attribute them to our own excellence. And when they're going badly, then we are pointing those over to exogenous factors. How is it then if you are an investor, an LP, a GP in the region, you're operating in private equity, like what, what can you do about this? Like you're just basically at the mercy of the fad. It's a sad truth, but that's it. When I began investing, or at least when I began like fundraising more than investing, I had this conception that those very sophisticated LPs from the US, from the Ivy League endowments, they were so like, like demigods, right? And they had this amazing vision of what's going to be like. And, and, and seeing that the vast majority who operates a, a sort of herd mentality was a bit frustrating, but that's reality and that's how things work. And you have to live with that and, and be sad and sorry for this, but try to profit from this situation or this reality. And, and that's how we do it. Or say the fact that four investors were getting out of the region because of a bubble elsewhere meant that asset pricing here would be low, capital be extremely scarce, and capital being scarce, returns will go up. As long as we're able to fundraise locally, which we were, would have amazing returns. And in the day in which foreign investors start to come in again, it's going to be the day in which our returns are going to suffer. Most likely, then we have to change a bit our strategy so that it doesn't suffer as much. But instead of being sorry for the fact that they're getting out, be happy that you have an amazing returns. Oh, this is fascinating. And would you say that within the current high interest rate environment that is kind of leveling the playing field? Because venture in the US, alternatives in the US become less attractive due to that factor. Does that help LATAM ultimately? I'm seeing a lot more demand for LATAM over the last six months. And due to geopolitical 
issues like war in Russia and the decoupling from China. Emerging markets money going to Russia cannot go to Russia anymore. Emerging markets going to China, which is the, the, by far the biggest. They're starting to say, eh, maybe not. And since people think about pigeonholes, I have emerging market money. If it cannot go to Russia, it cannot go to China. Where do I put this money into? And then LATAM emerges. And not necessarily now, this is LATAM. It's just like if it goes from like 2% of a global allocation to 3% of your global allocation, this is a 50% increase in money coming here. It's a big deal. And, and that's what I'm starting to see happening. And then with it, I'm trying not to be very political, political bias here, but the election of Lula here in Brazil, I think also was a game changer. I'm, I'm not very supportive of Lula, not really supportive of the pre previous candidate as well, but Lula has a, an amazing cachet uh, among international press and having, and, and since Brazil is only 2% of someone's allocation, the vast majority of the information you get is not through deep diving, is through what you read on the footnotes of international press. And therefore, just the, the footnotes changing, it changes your perception. And by changing your perception, it most likely will change your attitude. And now we're starting to see a lot of people interested in Brazil. And Brazil is the first step. And from Brazil, it go, goes Latin. My prediction is an in two, three years from now, because it's not like it, we're going to see another huge inflow of foreign money into the region. Definitely. It's fantastic to see that at Latam is less of an afterthought and maybe becomes more attractive to, to global investors. I, I feel there's so much potential there. With, with that regard, I, what's your outlook for, for the region also, not just in terms of venture, but generally where do you see the investment opportunities for the next years to come so coming back on your point I'm, I'm, I'm not that excited about money coming here right uh, money coming here means return to uh, our existing funds are going to profit because asset prices go up and so our existing lps are going to be very happy but the new money we are to invest most likely we're going to be investing at the lower expected return we, i had mixed feelings about that on the Region developing and become richer. I'm excited about we as LPs, uh, investors continue having amazing returns. Mixed things. Where are the opportunities we see now? The area I'm most excited with long run is search funds. I think it's just like amazing what's there and it's private equity improved. People that know what search fund is, is search funds is an asset class in which you invest in People they have just graduated from the MBA, so very young still, but to pay their salaries plus costs for them to go after and find a company to buy. And once they find a company to buy, you decide if you want to sponsor that acquisition or not. And if you do, then they become co-CEOs. It's either one or two CEO or co-CEOs of the company and manage it up to the end, up to when it's sold. It exists in the US for the last like 30 years. Stanford is the main hub of search funds elsewhere, and they, they publish amazing papers about search funds. Over the last like 30 years or so, uh, search funds in the US are performing something like 30% returns in dollars, which is just amazing. But it's a very small asset class. Only $3 billion have been invested in search funds in the US over history, which is nothing. But it's growing. It's growing at like a 30 to 40% a year, the number of search, or search funds being raised or funds being, uh, companies being acquired. So if you extrapolate, in like five to 10 years, it can become there an interesting asset class. 
And in LATAM, it's growing as well. Me Mexico is sort of the pioneer search funds in LATAM. Then Brazil came, and now Brazil is becoming larger than Mexico, but both are interesting locations. We invested in 32 searchers. We bought, we, we sponsored the acquisition of nine companies. Performance is, is being great, and the relationship is going great. Part of the reason why we think search funds is such an amazing stems from the research we've done. One step back here is Spectra has the largest database in LATAM alternatives, not only private equity. We do this because we've been receiving all materials from the managers and we're collecting this. And we went into the local SECs and grabbed information from the, the funds that they have to publish information and, and we structured this. We have data for, I'll say like 4,000 transactions. Uh, maybe 5,000, it's growing. We have a partnership with Inspire, a local academic institution, and ABVCAP, the local private equity association, to do the joint research. And through this, we publish interesting white papers there are in our website. We do this because we think we need to have good information so then we can make good investment decisions so we ha can have good returns. You know? And there's no good information, raw information for, for, for in private equity in LATAM. So we have to collect ourselves. One interesting study we've done is that we looked at the outliers, outlier returns in private equity, not, not VC. And we defined outliers for deals that had more than 5x. We had a previous study showing that 60 to 70% of, of the money that private equity has returned to LPs came from the outliers that have more than five, five times of capital. So we looked at those outliers. And when we did the dummy variable saying, was a CEO a owner? Or, or, or a principal or an agent. And, and this is subjective, uh, meaning that was the CEO seen as an owner? Uh, it didn't, didn't have to have control of the company. It didn't even have to be a relevant minority investor in the company. But it had to be seen as an owner through all the other stakeholders into the, in, into the entity, either employees, the investors, so forth. And we've seen that Roughly 50% of the deals had a CEO as an owner, 50% as an agent. And being agent, is, it's hired, has good salary, bonus, and carry, or stock options. But it's an agent and can be fired at will by the, the private equity manager. 50% on both sides, but 80% of the outliers had an owner as CEO. We looked at our own portfolio. We have more than 200 private equity companies. We took out the VC because obviously a founder is an owner. And also roughly 50% 50 sample size, but 80% had the owner as a CEO. And then we thought, there's something there. There's something that you as a CEO being an owner, you act differently. And we cannot, we don't happen to go into detail with that because it's sort of obvious that if, if you feel like an owner, you think more long-term, you think to add value for the, all the stakeholders, not only for you on your personal salary. And this leads to amazing returns. And search funds is the essence of that. The CEO is always an owner. And by being owners, they act differently and they add more value and they have amazing returns. No, it's great that you're bringing that up. Or was it was a bit biased or prejudiced on, on search funds as kind of the, the popular thing to do after graduating from your MBA and kind of, oh, yeah, I'm going to start a search fund. I haven't seen that much kind of actual results of this in Latam, for instance, but yeah. But, but you know what? It, it's actually the opposite. Like the, 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 the main thing that we see as investors for the growth of search funds is lack of people who want to start a search fund. And, and for me, like 
for me, it's the ideal job, like because it's not as risky as creating a startup because it just out of us and it might just fail. You buy into a company that already exists, have revenues that may be done, so the chances of failure are much slimmer. But it's much more like exciting than just finding a job at a consulting firm or a of a big tech company because you have much more upside and you're the owner. You, you can dictate your life. It seems an ideal compromise of, of, of course, you're not going to be a billionaire out of search fund, but you can at a startup, but you have far less risk and far more exciting than, than a corporate. I, I'll think everyone would be a search funder, but no. The, the, the reason why we don't invest more in search funds is because there are not, exist, not enough search funds out there. So, Listeners, if anyone is an MBA student wants to become a surgeon, think about it. I think it's an amazing career and call us. Fantastic. That's a good call out there. Brilliant. We are almost moving towards the end. There's three fast speed questions I'm asking everyone on the podcast. Would you be ready for those three questions? Okay. Yes. All right. So first one is, uh, who's an entrepreneur you admire and why? This answer is going to be a bit cache in the sense I'm going to say Elon Musk. I tend not to say the obvious, but I don't know if I admire him on his personal life. I will now have called my son like X18AZ. I don't know the name. I will not live in a container and, and be away from everyone. But I think his vision, his stamina, like he had an idea 12, like 20 years ago. It was crazy. And he's going after this. And he's just like brilliant execution. The way he thinks is like completely out of the box. He, he, he doesn't follow in. He's not afraid to say things that are non-conventional and just goes and makes it happen. We had that one before on, on the show, certainly uh, more controversial now with uh, with the Twitter acquisition, but that remains to be seen. A second one, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and would like to pass on to others? On the investment world is like, do the, the, the in poker, you have the sort of the chip in. People, we tried to fundraise 10 years ago. What they'll say to me is, hey, Interest rates in Brazil are still high. So our investors don't really need to get out of government bonds and go into private equity. So they can just stay there because it's easier. And for it to make a difference, for them to really go into private equity makes sense, they have to put so much money into private equity that we, we're not prepared to have a meaningful allocation of private equity now. Either stay in government bonds or go all in into private equity because they will not go all in, they will stay in government bonds. And suddenly, interest rates went from like 14 in Brazil to two. And when it was at two a couple of years ago, everyone was desperate. Oh, we have to do go and find like high return investments and, and they were doing bad investment decisions. The way we think it, about it is how we've done in VC and how we've done with all those new asset classes. Make a very small two-hold allocation, something that's not meaningful. That if you lose it all, it will not change anything. If you may have like 10x returns, it's not going to change anything. It's, the only thing that's going to change is information. You, you start to learn more about this asset class, investment, whatever. So you can get much more comfort than when you, when you need to go into it. Then you can expand uh, into a meaningful allocation for your portfolio in a sensible way. Perfect. That makes all the sense. Last but not, not least, three key words that describe a successful business, in your opinion. Focus, great execution, and foresight. Fantastic. Certainly three crucial key words that are necessary for a successful business. Is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before we close? It was a great pleasure. Oh, it was, was a lot of fun. Really, really enjoyed that conversation, Ricardo. Thanks again for making the time. 
Thank you for listening to the Enthusiast Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts to always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you enjoy the work we are doing, drop us a review or give us a rating. This show is produced by me, Patrick Alex. Also a big shout out to Constanze Ulreich, who is leading our newsletter efforts and much more. Title music by Stock Studio called That Funk Show. <laughs>